You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 191. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you again this week. We'll start by touching on Aaron's Money Talks with Mike Campbell appearance. He will have a segment on why dividend growth stocks should be part of every Canadian investor's portfolio heading into 2023. In a Stock Talk 101 segment, Brett will give you his take on the problem of investing in concept stocks. In our Your Stock Our Take segment, I answer a question on an embattled Canadian software company, Die and Durham, symbol DND on the TSX, the serial acquirer, which provides cloud-based software for legal and business professionals, has seen its share price drop 67% in 2022 in the tech crash. And a listener asks if it finally offers value. Finally, Brennan compares CN Rail and CP Rail in the wake of the Kansas City Southern deal. A listener asks us whether it which is a better buy now after the dust has settled. I'm going to welcome my co-hosts Aaron and the Killer Bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? Doing well. What about yourself? We're snowed in. Buried in snow. Buried oh, in yeah. snow. <laughs> yeah, I looked outside. There's like two feet of snow in front of my house. Yeah, I literally measured it an inch short of two feet like that is in, for here in vancouver like we've said oh that's a lot of snow you don't you don't get i mean it's once every two inches in the city or something down. where you where you get this much snow so i remember the last airport time, is I remember shut being snowed in it's like 15 years ago or something yeah yvr the airport no planes are going in and out oh really snow, so it's completely yeah. shut down well your wife may be crazy. stuck in uh, yeah, yeah wherever we'll she see. is <laughs> We still have it. They have a couple of days. To is that a good or bad thing? I'm not That's sure. It's a bad thing. <laughs> there is a couple of kids to be honest. It's a very bad That's, thing. Yeah, it's true. Um, no, I'm sure it'll be fine. She's got a couple of days. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I was, sure. it's kind of depressing though. The, you know, I'm out there shoveling the snow and uh, it's just like this perfect white light powder. And it just makes me want to be on the hill snowboarding, right? Like yeah. it's the perfect conditions for that. So. It's the worst we're, part. I'm, we're I'm, on I'm, a I'm, hill. I, I, yeah, great. You should jump on a snowboard and go down <laughs> the hill. Well, I didn't jump yeah, on I a can. snowboard, but we actually, because we live right at the the ocean, right? We jumped. Mm-hmm. In, we have kayaks, so. Oh, you did we, do that. We oh, jumped wow. in kayaks, and like I took neighbor kids and my daughter down the hill in kayaks That's at crazy. super high speed and jumped mm-hmm. the road. That sounds safe. Onto, <laughs> onto the that beach. sounds totally it, safe. It, yeah. Well, father of the year. Yes, it's true. But um, we honestly, the, the the one car that went down our street, uh, he's, you know, it literally uh, smashed. He's like, oh, I see Ryan. So he was trying to, he was trying. He tried. Yeah. But no, he left his, left his bumper and his fog lights on the the poles at the end of our street. So (laughs) no other cars are going down there right now. No. Oh, that's nice. That's, that's nice. Yeah. 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 We have a park. Um, it's a little bit down the road that's got some nice hills on it. So last year I took the kids tobogganing down that. I might do that later today, although uh, I don't know. There's some hills just to get to that park. So I just wasn't sure if it'd be a good <laughs> idea to be driving on the road. But yeah, I mean. You mean you don't take your kids down hills with car, you know cars all over them in a kayak? You don't do that? Well, I would actually <laughs> be in an SUV with snow tires. And I'm still mm-hmm. questioning whether it's a good idea. Yeah. Because, you know. The, no, the snow it was tires, good times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, as long as nobody was driving, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fairly certain that, uh, you know, you weren't tobogganing into a road where there's cars driving down. So you're or certain, but well, now, 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 I don't know. 
fishy be no, so certain. We had spotters. We had spotters, right? So right, that's, right. They were watching, but we, uh, but yeah, it was. The, there were some neighbors. The spotters were it. they older than eight? Uh, <laughs> no, no, they were. Everybody oh, is either. Come on. Everybody's over eighty, so that's the area I live in. Honestly, I think it's. Anyways, uh, no, honestly, I, I some neighbors were filming, and I swear we're gonna end up as a meme at some point here, some video, you know. Forcing yeah, that's good that you guys seniors to stand out in the freezing sledding. cold, so that you can uh, you can play around. That's horrible. Perfect. All right, well, let's get in. You, you did a Money Talks appearance, Money, Michael Campbell. How'd that interview go? I thought it was uh, pretty it good. It sounded although, good. We heard it. Yeah, well, no, you know, just for the record, Ryan said that it was horrible when I talked him the first time, which, if you know Ryan, means it was great. It means that he loves Truth it, be right? told. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think it went really well. Um, felt like we kind of walked through all the main points, and this is... This is this was a bit of a prelude to what's coming up in February, which is the World Outlook Conference, and the first time in what three years that it's been a live event due to yes, COVID. in person. So that's be nice. fantastic. I mean, I'm you know speaking in front of a camera on on my computer is fine. It's a very convenient thing to do, but there's nothing that replaces getting in front of a crowd and speaking. So I'm really looking forward to that. But what what we t- we talked about with with um, on the show, Mike and I. It's just about, you know, how are we looking at the current market environment with respect to, you know, does it change our investment strategy? We talked a little bit about dividend growth stocks, you know, how that strategy um, fits into the current environment. And then I made a couple of recommendations as well. A couple of dividend companies, a U.S. tech company. I talked a little bit about our U.S. tech research and just how really our strategy, rather than trying to predict what's going to happen in the next three to six months, with the Fed, with the market, with investor sentiment, with all of that, we're building a portfolio that is is set up to be successful over the next three to five years and well beyond. And to do that, we mix in some, you know, some exciting themes in areas like maybe technology, still profitable businesses, but high growth, innovative companies. We mix those in with more staple names, such as some of the dividend growth stocks. And, you know, everything that we recommend, we, we're growth investors. We want to see growth. Um, but, you know, some is a more staple, consistent, uh, less volatile, less economically sensitive growth. And some is, you know, that really charged innovative growth. So it's I, I felt it was probably one of the best interviews. that I've done. Yeah. And ha- having said, you don't when we hate predictions next week, uh, as an FYI, we'll be making our predictions for 2023. I don't even remember what I predicted last year. So. Oh, no, we'll have to, it'll be fun to look back it. and see and see. I think yeah. one of my predictions on Brennan came true, though, and that wasn't in regards to the uh, stock market, but we'll have to review <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah, we'll that'll see. be funny. We'll see if that one comes through. Uh, so do you, want to t- do you want to do your segment on uh, dividend stocks, Aaron? Sure, yeah. I just, I we just, just get to? pulled out a couple slides here. Uh, I figured I'd just walk through. So dividend investing, this has been a, uh, an important theme for us for, I guess, about 12 years. Um, when we probably started more. to do our, our, probably even more, I mean, just when we started to do our, our dividend growth research and time flies when you're talking dividends, right? Yeah. And well, what, what it really, what it, where it really started was, you know, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, you know, we wanted to look at some names where one, I mean, you were getting zero return from the, from the bond market or the fixed income market, people needed income, but we wanted to also get some stability and mix into the portfolio. So uh, dividend research has been, you know, a focus of ours, and there's some very good reasons for that. So just to kind of make sure people, everybody's on the same page, most people know what dividends are. These are income payments made by corporations to their shareholders. Um, generally, they're made quarterly or monthly, um, and they are they differ from bonds in that they're paid at the discretion of the company. So every month or every quarter, the company is going to make the decision whether or not to pay the dividend. Whereas a bond is the the coupon payment the interest payment that's an obligation of the issuer over the term of the bond so that's what that's one of the big differences between a dividend payer and and a bond but where our focus is as i said we're growth investors so our focus is on what are called dividend growth stocks so these are companies they're growing businesses they pay a dividend but they're investing enough capital back into the business that they can continue to grow and they can increase their dividend over time so that's that's really what we're what we're looking for as opposed to just that that um, you know uh, traditional low growth dividend model where yeah you're getting a dividend but you're not getting much out else um, so 
there are a lot of good reasons why uh, why people should invest in dividend stocks. So one is the cash flow. A lot of people need the cash flow. Um, sometimes they use it as income to, for their living expenses. Sometimes they reinvest it. But getting that cash flow is good. Um, but then the growing dividend as well, particularly in an environment like we're in right now, can help to offset the impact of inflation. So if you're getting a coupon payment or a dividend payment, sorry, that maybe equates to a 5% yield today, but we're in an inflationary environment for, for, for many years, if that dividend payment does not grow, then um, you know, your real purchasing power from those dividends um, declines actually. So the growing dividend could help to offset that. Um, now, a lot of people think that dividend payers are just boring companies. Some people even say avoid dividend stocks completely. That's really bad advice. Even if you don't care about the dividend themselves, some of the most stable, best managed companies in the world do pay dividends. So if you, as a rule, ignore dividend companies, you're ignoring some of the best companies to invest on. Um, and then the last point here, and this is something that I'm going to get into in the next couple slides, is that dividend growth stocks on average, they substantially outperform uh, non-dividend payers, and they do that at a lower level of risk. So let's take a look at some of that data. This is data that is put together every year from RBC Capital Markets. Uh, and what they do is they, um, from 1986 to current, which the most current year, of course, being 2021 that we finished, they track the performance of dividend growers, dividend payers, um, and then non-dividend companies, so companies that don't pay dividends. Uh, and this is for the TSX, so up here in Canada. And what they found is consistently every time I look at this research, dividend growers substantially outperform every other category just on an average return basis. Right. So over this period of time, uh, dividend growers are generated an average annual uh, return of 11.2%. That would be including the dividend. Um, and you compare that to the market average of 6.5%. So significant improvement over the market average. But then compare that to non-dividend pairs, companies that don't pay dividends, 1.4%. Uh, so uh, almost... I mean, just an absolutely substantial outperformance between the two groups. Now, of course, these are averages. When you go into the different categories, you're going to find some dividend growers don't perform as well. Some non-payers perform extremely well. Um, but as an average, you're getting a far higher return by investing in dividend growth stocks than you are by investing in any of these other categories, especially companies that don't pay dividends. Um, but wait, there's more. Risk. So investing is not just about about return. It's all about it's also about managing risk. So RBC also tracks the volatility, annualized volatility of these categories over the same time period. And uh, once again, dividend growers always lead the pack in terms of, in this case, lower volatility. So volatility just being a measure of risk. How widely does a stock price fluctuate? Dividend growers annualized thirteen point two percent volatility. Uh, less than the market average, a little bit less than the market average, but way less than non-dividend pairs that are that are almost up there at about 25%. So almost half the risk, right? So many times the return on average, you know, little over half the risk. I mean, it it's a, it it really it really is is a conclusion unto itself. I mean, if you don't invest if you don't have dividend growth stocks as a key part of your portfolio, we believe you're setting yourself up at a systemic disadvantage. Um, so this is why we think that every investor should have some dividend stocks in their portfolio, some dividend growers. It doesn't necessarily have to be all of your portfolio. It doesn't even have to be the majority of your portfolio. The composition is going to change a lot. It's going to depend on the individual, the risk tolerance, a number of different things. But the way that we see it, the dividend grow, grow stocks, as long as you're selecting great companies, which is what we look to do, um, they make the, the they form the foundation of your portfolio, right? So you're building your portfolio on a strong foundation, and then you're adding layers of risk to augment that return. And, you know, that can be, you know, uh, small caps, that can be um, some of these, you know, exciting technology companies, maybe even a little bit of commodities as well, but it's, it's, it's generating the right mix of these different types of stocks, which include dividend growers that set a portfolio up for success in the long term. Awesome. One thing that I love to stress too is just, you know, the effect of yield as, you, you know, how it grows when you purchase a stock 
you know, say several years back and that company continues to grow the dividend, that effective yield that you get to, you know, put in your pocket. Like I, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but you know, Brookfield infrastructure, I believe if you bought it in 2011, you're getting an effective yield of over 20% on that initial capital every year that you put in uh, to that stock, even just with my own portfolio, Dynacor, Dynacor just ended up increasing their dividend again recently. And, you know, I think my effective yield is now over 7%. So, you know, I'm getting 7% on that initial capital that I invested in that stock every single year now. Um, you know, I just think that that's, it's great. It's great to see a company growing their dividend and, you know, slowly that effective yield grows as you hold the position. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah, for sure. And uh, like you said, on Dynacor, they originally had no dividend when we recommended mm-hmm. it. And then yeah. it, it, it instituted the dividend. And from like some of the, you know, the buy prices that we've had on it, it's uh, it's over 7% effective dividend rate. And we expect it to continue to increase that. Um, it, it really starts to, that dividend kind of compounds to higher levels over time. For you. And it's a monthly dividend too. So, you know, it pays for my coffee every month, which is kind of nice. So. All right. <laughs> At least you don't have to pay for it yourself, right? One you other thing that I, I should that. mention as well, yeah, just for just for information, we, we talked about this on the interview on Money Talks as well, is that uh, we're in the process of putting together our 2023 Canadian yeah. Dividend All-Star Report. So a lot of really exciting companies that we're looking at through there. And this is, this is starting off with a list of 350, about 350 dividend-paying stocks in Canada. So this is when you strip out the ETFs, the funds, um, you know, some of the split corp, the split corps, that's basically what you got. You got, a, you have a universe of 350 companies in Canada um, that are paying dividends and we go through every single one, right? So we have our, our current list of recommendations from our income research. Um, so we obviously go through all of those and provide updates in the report, um, but we go through every other company as well. So that's potentially new recommendations. There's a couple that we're very close on. Actually, we all four just had a really interesting call yesterday with uh with the company back east the small cap dividend pair um you know so we're looking to add a few to our current list and then there's also going to be about a, a 10 to 15 stock monitor list so companies that aren't quite ready for our recommendation but where we see a high high probability of a recommendation over the next one or two quarters yeah and we look forward to the release of that special report which is done annually and there'll be some great companies in there obviously updating companies and coverage and we'll look to add some new companies and take advantage of some of the market declines that we've seen here now we can move on to a segment it kind of step brett's going to take that the problem of investing in concept stocks i think it comes out of we, we get a ton of questions on individual companies some large some small some of the smaller companies because uh, we like to dig into the cash flow of the business, look at, and uh, you know, helps us value where, what, how the business should be priced. But sometimes we get these concept stocks, you know, very often where, you, you know, you don't have an underlying cash flow. You might not even have revenues. And how do you value them? Well, let's look at some of the problems we have kind of looking at these individual companies. And Brett's going to start that. Yeah. So what actually sparked my uh, really look into this was uh, Brennan's company last week. He did a uh, drone delivery capital, which uh, we just said wasn't investment worthy, but we were really saying the concept is cool. It's an in- interesting technology and it could go somewhere eventually, but the company at that this time just isn't good, frankly. And so, yeah, I started to look into concept stocks. So you're probably asking, what is a concept stock? It's not something you'll hear widespread. It's not a, a, like a super well well-known or super commonly used term, but it is quite clear. A concept stock is a company with substantial historic losses normally, and in many cases, little or no revenue. And investors need to buy into a concept. So an idea, instead of the underlying financials, like what we like to do. So we've recently seen many high-tech concept stocks in tech, things that are commonly in AI, electronic vehicles, practically anything that Kathy would be would be interested in her big uh, industries. Those are commonly concept stocks because they're just not producing revenue. And if they are, it's probably not much. She does invest in other things, I should say, but a lot of her holdings are these concept stocks. But they aren't always high tech. Actually, quite historically, we were seeing oil and gas exploration. That's something we commonly see on our CDAR sweeps right now. I know Brennan and me have been going back and forth talking about how many stocks you go on CDAR. So there's thousands of stocks on CDAR in Canada. If you don't know, you'll never hear about them. And for good reasons, they'll never produce any profit. 
but they're just eating up shareholder capital and because what they're trying to do is sell a concept that, hey, we got this plot of land, there's oil on it. But lots of times, there's not an economic amount of oil. And if there is, it's hard to extract. And for every, let's say, 30 companies, you might have one that makes it. So that's really what a concept stock is. It doesn't need to be a certain industry. It's just not profitable. And the management is really trying to sell you on an idea of future value and not current value. So another common trait of them is they're going to collapse in the short term. One of the papers which I looked at was a 2006 paper called The History and Performance of Concept Stocks. And it had a ridiculous amount of the average lifespan for concept stocks was about three and a half years. Think about that. You're buying a stock and it's going to collapse in three and a half years. I have held stocks in my investment life and I am not very old compared to especially these guys here. Uh, <laughs> had, to take the shot. had to take the shot um and i've held stocks longer than that and most stocks you're thinking about ho- holding at least potentially in perpetuity so forever concept stocks most likely you're not going to be able to because it's going to be sold off the assets are going to be sold off your stock price is going to be a fraction of a cent and sold just to get an instant listing so that that paper which i was referencing let's look at historical data that's what really focused on and they used data from 1967 to 1999. And on average, they found the concept stocks, which they define as the stocks with the top 10 highest price to sales. So a high price to sale means either the sales are super low, so your revenue is super low, and the price is high normally. So that that's the top percent, top, top decile, so the top 10%, and that's what they used to define concept stocks. And those stocks over their period perform worse than the broader market. Shocker, the stocks that are collapsing in three and a half years are worse than ones that you can hold for long periods of time. So this stock, the data they used was up to 1999. And you can see right in their data, which I'll pop up for our viewers, that you'll see a sharp turn right up before the dot-com bubble. And that's probably one of the biggest systematic increase in these concept stocks. And But I would argue we're seeing those even more and more common these days. We're seeing the cryptocurrency, AI, EV, where some of the market companies, I'm not going to lie, they, they have promising futures, but a lot of them, no sales or low sales and no income. So what really is the issue with these concept stocks? They can't be valued. It's as simple as that. So most valuation metrics, they'll use net income, cash, or some inter intermediary. So you'll use EBITDA, something like that. But all you really need to know if you're not looking into these very deep is cash is king. Net income is probably second. And you'll see a various adjustments. It depends on the industry exactly. But the issue is with these concept stocks, you don't have earnings. You can't have cash flow. So what do you use? You might use sales if they have revenue. But a lot of them don't even have that. So what do you use? You'll see in the dot-com bubble, they, they use stuff like clicks. How does a click convert to cash? It's very, very nebulous. And you can't exactly get a good metric off of that. So they are quite, to say the least, speculative. And they'll commonly rely on, you'll see in the management, the industry is $700 billion. We're going to take 1% of that, but most of them don't. So what they have to do, they're extrapolating out. We're going to take 1%. We'll make a 30% profit margin. And we're, we're good. We're, we're this already should be valued at billions and billions of dollars, even though we haven't hit even a cent of profit or a cent of revenue. And of course, they'll, they'll say, hey, you, you just got to trust us. These values are great. We have no management experience or we're on our fifth company in 10 years, but you should trust us and we'll just pay ourselves some stock comp on the way. So a current example of this, which I'm not going to be as negative, that's a bit of a hyperbole, what I was just saying, but is First Hydrogen Corp, symbol FHYD on the TSX Venture. It is a company that's designing hydrogen utility vans and they sell hydrogen as service, which they're essentially selling the equivalent of gas pumps, but for hydrogen vehicles. And that's really what their long-term goal seems to be, is create a market with their hydrogen vehicles and then sell the pumps and the hydrogen, which they're buying off a third party, uh, as an upsell. So the company's currently trading at $4.80 with a market cap of $238 million, and it is up 176% year-to-date. So it must have great financials, right? You're seeing a company go up 176%, and we're not just talking a very tiny micro cap at this point. We're talking a couple hundred million, so it at least should have some substance behind it. But no, they made a whopping $160,000 in their last quarter or two quarters ago, sorry. 
And that's the only revenue they have ever had. That leads to an absurd price to sales, which, by the way, this number is meaningless. I'm just using it for an example. 1,486 times price to sales, which is already, a, in my opinion, generally a poor metric. You can use it to support some things, but you don't really want to rely on it. So it's a concept stock. You're buying the concept. They have a timeline of about over 24 months. They're starting to push their initial vehicles as some fleet tests. So they do at least have some operational substance behind them. But the financial substance, you're looking at least two years away. And that would be very optimistic, in my opinion. And that's the problem with many of these composite stocks. It's a race against time. So like I said, they have two two years, let's say. They have three and a half, set, 3.7 million cash and a, not about 900,000 other current assets, which is like inventory, accounts receivable. So you can normally get some sort of money back quite quick on those. You can sell off the receivables, get a few hundred more thousand dollars. So let's say $4 million. They use $6.6 million in cash over the last six months. So you see the problem here. They're spending, they're spending, they're not bringing in any cash in. And but so what are they going to do? They're raising money through shares. Let's dilute our stock. They got 7.6 million in the same six month time period. But they have been lucky. Their price has still went up. Their share prices went up. So they haven't had to dilute some. Like we see many other companies, especially those exploration oil and gas companies, they're just dilute, dilute, and dilute. And as the share price goes down, you need to dilute more. So if you're an early shareholder, you believed in the concept, your money's gone. You're going to get a one one hundredth of your initial money back even if you're right. And that's really the issue. So in summary, concept stocks are extremely speculative, have poor valuation models, and on a whole, perform worse in the broader market, which is why we generally avoid them. Well, we All right, I'll generally avoid guys. them. What well, we do avoid we them, I should say. I should say, we talk about them. That's what I was more we getting at. We'll talk about them. We're, we're we'll willing to talk about them. We, we despise them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, it was, it was <laughs> on this show, we'll talk about them, but we'll never yeah. invest. Yes, in that's different. Yeah, I mean, sure. we might even yeah. do a star, like have a company of a star. That has mm-hmm. nothing to do with whether or not we like the company. Mm-hmm. It just has to do with whether or not the price went up. Sometimes we'll do a star and a dog and we actually like the dog as an investment long term. We hate the star. Well, that's, that's actually what I how I came across this company. I ran a screen or uh, looking for stars and dogs. 176% uh, haven't heard of this company and has at least somewhat of a market cap behind it. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's that's how I ran into it. So what no, I, I take here's... exception, I'll just, sorry, I'll get, I'll just, I take exception to one thing there. And that was um, how concept stocks were tracked. Because you mentioned that they were tracked based mm-hmm. on uh, price to yeah. sales, high price to sales. It's not per- perfect, but I was no. going to criticize myself yeah, too. Because it's, that, I yeah, because I think that most of them don't even have any sales. No, so but you, you wouldn't would, you wouldn't be able to track mm-hmm. on that unless so, it had a zero pre- like it would a have price. Zero, so I assume they would count it as the highest bracket. That's what I was thinking that they were a doing. So price. this wasn't a, a the, zero the ratio, sales. Just if they had zero yeah, so the, yeah, so they were just counting that as the highest decile. Yeah, I mean you would just say infinite then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Infinite. Yeah. yeah. Infinite. Okay. Over zero. Yeah. No, but I mean, I, I get that they have to have some type of a standardized mm-hmm. metric as opposed yeah. to just picking them every year. So I totally understand why they do that. I just think that if you actually calculated returns and you had all the concept stocks in there, many of which would have zero sales. Oh, yeah. um, so did they actually do that? Did they have an infinite? I will have to look up. Don't even worry about it. It doesn't matter. Sure. Yeah. I just yeah. had a curiosity. So maybe they actually yeah. did. Maybe they said, you know, this is mm-hmm. infinite or whatever. Yeah, it, w- um, it was based off the U.S. stock market yeah. as well. In Canada, we do have a lot more small caps than these micro caps. Oh, we would have. So I, I, would, I would guess we're a lot worse here. Uh, unfortunately, it would be 95% <laughs> yeah. probably or, or mm-hmm. something not far off for the uh, for the TSX venture. A little bit better in the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. I mean, it's, it's something that people need to know. And I think it's. Um, I think it's good to discuss this because retail investors get duped by concept stocks all the time. And and I'm not trying to, I, I should actually say retail investors, institutional investors too, all investors, right? And it's, um, we've always said, you know, if there's one thing that an investor can do to uh, to easily avoid risk, the, the most possible risk in just one decision, um, and that is to not invest in companies that aren't generating profitability. Right. And that's, you know, right away. Are you going to miss a couple um, moonshots? Sure. You, you might miss, you will miss a couple, maybe, um, maybe not, but you're going to still be much better off because, you know, you don't know what, the, what those moonshots are ahead of time. So if you invest in a hundred concept stocks and one of them goes to the moon, I mean, it has to go up more than a hundred times. It has to go up a hundred times then just to like make your money back. Right. 
And I, th- um, I think the the misconception is that the only way you can get a moonshot stock, a moonshot, a stock mm-hmm. that goes up, you know, thousands of times, is by buying these absolute concept stocks. Where in actuality, the only stocks that I've really seen, you know, over twenty five years have those type of moonshot returns are businesses that actually had cash flow revenue and mm-hmm. earnings when they started and increased those over time. So they, they probably, and many of these companies like the, the, the Boyd groups that are up, you know, 8,000, 10,000%, right. Um, they had an actual business and traded at valuations that were lower than XYZ mining Inc or ABC mining Inc that had a property somewhere Anywhere in the world, that moose pasture that Brennan visits in Saskatoon, that's a property all the time. That same company had a higher valuation than when, say, we bought Boyd or Expel. Um, you know, and you don't have to take those type of risks that people think they have to to make those moonshot type returns in your portfolio. You can find great businesses. I mean, e- even today, like Brennan just mentioned, Dynacore. Well, they have a moose pasture in Peru too. We wouldn't really care about that in the valuation, but there's many companies out there that Dynacore has a $100 million market cap, for example, today. They have $40 million in cash, right? So you, and I'm slightly above that, but you, you, can, you can have that blue sky of that property. It, they have a property in Peru there. That These many companies have a $150 million market cap with that moose pasture that they're drilling sometime or they're, you know, raising a bunch of money. You know, there's no moose in Peru, right? Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's still a moose pasture. I don't know. That's all I call I see a that. Sheep, That's a, a sheep. Or a but bottom line, you don't have to take those risks to have those type of returns. So that's what we kind of try to stress to our clients all the time and to investors, you know, anybody who wants to listen to it, that don't take those risks. You know, buy five or 10 stocks that have great underlying fundamentals that have really strong growth as well. There's more of a chance that those are going to be the companies that provide you the moonshot type returns, those two or three stocks that you really need in your lifetime to change your portfolio that we talk about. As for a proxy in the Canadian markets for what concept stocks will do, I just, you know, I encourage you to look up the TSX Venture. Look at the chart on that since uh, the inception, essentially. I think it was in October of 2006. I'm going to pull it up here. It, it 2,456 around that. Today, it's 562. So it's. I know it's not the best uh, way of looking at it because, like, you know, the, the, the companies that do the best, like Expel was originally listed on the TSX, then graduated off of it. But its returns, significant amount of returns before it jumped off it were there. But anyways, if you look at the terrible returns of the venture exchange, which has a ton of concept stocks on it, you can see on average over time, these companies do not do well. Uh, they're just too much, too much speculation in these businesses. Like me and Aaron always say, just if you want to have that type of crazy fun with your money, just go to Vegas and put it all in black or red and uh, you'll have more fun. And you'll not, probably have not, the same outcome in the not end. Not my idea of a good time, but no, the no. Vegas part sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> some food and some shows. Like also, also, I'd like to add to just on <laughs> these concept stocks. It's it's crazy how some people try to justify these crazy valuations. Like there was this one telehealth company uh, that I kind of got into it with this one individual um, <laughs> that was trading at fifteen times sales, and and that's what you know he said to me. He was like, you know. He, you know, basically saying every growth sector in today's zero interest era is valued based on EV to sales rather than, you know, cash flow or earnings. You know, he's basically saying, look at where he says, you know, look at every company. Oh, exactly. Exactly. That was, and you know, when he's saying, look at the tech space, such as Zoom, Tesla, you know, Snowflake, et cetera, all of these businesses. High performers. Exactly. (laughs) High performers. And even this one telehealth company that I'm referring to, and I was saying like, I mean, it's 15 times EV to sales. Like, come on, man. That's you know, good. this, this stock is down over 90%. Up. 
you know, since I had this conversation with this individual. And so, he uh, still thinks you're a moron for not buying it. What about, what about your review? On, yeah, I'm sure he does. What about your review on Cielo Waste, which was yeah, a complete concept stock, you know? Uh, exactly, just, same. Yeah. You know, same thing. I, I love how I, it's the investors and the concept stocks that are always the most sensitive oh, yeah. about anybody saying Told us we didn't know what the hell right? we're talking about. I mean, I invest um, in a know, company that's got like technology. growth and earnings and, and cash flow and somebody says something bad. I'm just kind of like, oh, it's producing cash flow. It'll keep doing that. So the market will, yeah. you know. Yeah. But it's... Well, uh, Cielo went from a dollar. I think it's at five cents today, right? Well, yeah. I, you know, it's just what can happen in a concept stock when people actually say, hey, wait a minute, there's... There's and no that's maybe why people are so sensitive, right? Because deep down, whether mm -hmm. consciously or not, they recognize that the only thing that's keeping that up is psychology. And if you attack yeah. the psychology, then the stock goes down and they end up looking like complete morons. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's a house of cards. It's and like on Cielo too, like the CEO was selling at like the high of like $1.20 someone was on the internet was coming back to me saying no no he's actually got more shares and then he ended up stepping down you know like months after the absolute decline of the and stock. that person still stands by their statement <laughs> probably <laughs> um, anyways anyways good. no it's all right let's great points thanks for that segment it was good yeah. now let's go to our your talk our your talk, your stock, our take segment. Um, I'm going to look at Die and Durham. We've got a number of questions on this company. And speaking of companies that have had, you know, in the tech decline, had significant decline. I think it's down uh, 67% this year. Die and Durham Limited, symbol DND on the TSX, trades $14.08, $928 million market cap, pays a 0.56% yield. Uh, Diane Durham is a provider of cloud-based software and technology, including legal software and data and payments technology solutions designed to improve the efficiency and increase productivity for legal and business professionals. The company is executing on a growth by acquisition strategy. So between 2013 and 2020, the company performed 13 acquisitions, grew from a few million in revenues uh, to over 300 million US per year. Since the summer of 22, the company has been on 2020. Sorry, the company has been on an acquisition spree, adding seven major acquisitions for more than 1.15 billion Canadian dollars, and one uh, which I'll talk about more in a second. It chased over 12 months, will not be proceeding. The company is also now being forced to sell one of its acquisitions due to a competitive review. The sale will be of the company's July 2021. $156 million acquisition of the TMG group. Now, perhaps the company will close a winning deal. Its balance sheet could use it, but the market now knows that DND is forced to sell this company and M&A conditions have deteriorated. So this is something to watch closely to see if they get their money back on that transaction. Acquisition, this challenge that they've had. Well, 12 months ago, they agreed for a $2.9 billion acquisition of a company called Link Administrative Holding Limited. It's a publicly listed Australian firm which provides services to the superannuation administration industry. Uh, what is superannuation? Uh, it's basically Australian for a retirement fund offered by an employer. Now, the deal was trimmed to $2.5 billion in July. Uh, after renegotiation. And once again, it did not move forward at that number. A third offer was tabled essentially uh, for DND trying to buy Link, just a part of Link, uh, for a lower price, but it was rejected. Now, in our opinion, given the valuation to be paid for Link, DND may have dodged a bullet. Additionally, with the shrinking equity value in DND's stock and the higher price of debt and the amount of leverage on the company's balance sheet, the link acquisition looked like D&D overextending itself almost from the start. So let's see how this company did in its first quarter of fiscal 2023. Revenues were $120.2 million. That's up 7% from the same period last year. Adjusted EBITDA was $64.4 million. That's up 3% from the same period last year. And then net loss was $11.5 million. 
The balance sheet, D&D has a total debt of $1.16 billion. While it produces solid cash flow, this is high for a company with a market cap that is just sub $1 billion. We note the company has $878 million roughly of floating rate debt. And that debt rate, the rate on that debt, has increased significantly since it's entered into that debt in December 2021. At that time, it was likely paying in the range of 5 to 6%. Today, it's likely in the range of 9 to 12%. That will cut into cash flow uh, over time. Our take here. On the surface, DND trades at approximately five times trailing cash flow, which appears attractive. But given the significant debt for this company uh, and a company of its size, we would use enterprise value to capture this in the ratio. Thus, DND trades at around nine times enterprise value to operating cash flow. My issue here would also center around the lack of visibility to organic growth. It's great to grow via acquisition, levering up your balance sheet, um, but it's a difficult to game to grow by acquisition if you acquire uh, businesses that have limited growth. Using debt to do so in a rising rate environment is even more challenging. If you generate cash flow and patiently use it to acquire, that is a different equation and one that can be easier to succeed at. But it's actually rare to find a company do that in the public markets for a variety of reasons. Another near-term or mid-term, near and mid-term concern is that 68% of revenue has exposure to real estate real estate transactions in Canada, the UK, Ireland, and Australia for the company. The company itself called out an extremely challenging real estate market in Canada in its last quarter. And this was as at the end of September 2022. The sector has worsened to a degree since that time. Finally, I will point out the company withdrew its fiscal 2023 adjusted EBITDA target citing the deteriorating macroeconomic trends, which are resulting in lower number of real estate transactions on the markets in which the company operates. There is a case to be made with, with the solid cash generation of its core business. D&D is intriguing as share price continues to pull back. But given the near-term headwinds in its market, the high floating debt levels in a rising rate environment and lack of significant organic growth, or at least visibility on that right now, we are not buyers. We would not be buyers of DND. And we've answered that question since it traded in the $50 range and said, nope, um, we just didn't see the value there. You know, it's starting to be interesting. I do note, Tumpy, I do note too, the company did a substantial course issuer bid where it bid $150 million for its shares um, in this current range uh, recently. I mean, I do question a little bit spending 150 million when you've got you know 800 plus in floating rate debt uh, on the balance sheet. I know they do, you know, they do generate significant cash flow. It does look like a core business, which which should continue to do that. But you know, reducing debt to me would be uh, part of the plan here. They want to continue to be acquisitive going forward too. So. I don't think I'd be using my share price as as a means of doing that if they think they're buying it back. But um, you know, to me, adding more debt to the balance sheet is a difficult proposition. Is too too. They believe they can, but uh, for me, you know, in this environment, I don't want to see too much floating debt. And uh, given their size, adding more to that. No, that's. Uh, I actually didn't know that about them, so that's good to know. I you know I would be dead against buying back shares when you have all that floating rate debt there. Get get as much floating rate debt off the books as possible. Clean up the balance sheet. That's probably going to do more for your share price and your uh, cost of equity capital than buying back shares. I mean, the risk of buying even back if it shares was fixed, like, right? Even if it was fixed. Um, I mean, at some point it 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 rolls over, you know, mm -hmm. and it's probably at a higher rate, and you know, it, it's it's a high debt level. For a company of that size, and uh, I realize there is cash flow there, but you know, I I, I do believe if you're going to continue to add to that debt, paying it down as well is a good concept. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it's not to say that you know there isn't some attraction to the underlying business there. I do believe they dodged a bullet. Not well, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't like the, I don't like the growth by acquisition strategy in the technology space. Like it, it that from my experience. 
the technology companies that perform well over time are the technology companies. They'll do, they'll do a few acquisitions some smaller acquisitions, but it's primarily high levels of organic growth. That's what's going to get you the valuation. Um, that's what's going to grow the business long-term. I, I, you know, in some, the only companies that have been able to do it is where they conduct a lot of it out of internally generated cash flow. And that's a very difficult thing because you've got to get to scale where you're actually generating enough cash flow and then do it. And, you know, it maybe came from an initial opportune raise and then you've been able to do it. But like in the, you know, like, you know, there's Constellation has been an example of a yes, company that's been able to walk that type there line. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Angel's had as well. As well. I, like it's, yeah. And, and now they're starting to make acquisitions again. So it's, it's starting, you know, and you'd like to see valuations come down, but they have to have, they have to have a valuation environment. Mm-hmm. That is not what we saw for two years, right? Like they're generating a ton of cash so they can bring it in, both those companies. So it hasn't been the best environment from that. It weakens and they're probably sitting there licking their chops, right? So, I mean, it's a, like Aaron said, it's a very difficult thing to do. The companies that get the best valuations have organic growth in that sector, mm-hmm. in the tech sector for sure. It's totally right. All right, let's get to Brennan picking pasture. up, taking the rear, moose pasture. Get okay. off your moose pasture and get to looking at these companies, right? Yes. Let me just share my screen here. Ironically, these companies travel through a lot of moose pastures uh, across yeah, the country. They actually they? do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> moose pastures. <laughs> That's Turn what you say day. is a segue, right? Yeah, I guess so. So yes, this is a your stock our take. Uh, and the question was, I, w- I was wondering if you could compare CN Rail with CP Rail in the wake of the Kansas City Southern deal, which is the better buy now the dust has settled. So Canadian National Railway Company or CNR on the TSX and Canadian Pacific Railway Limited CP on the TSX. So CNR engages in the retail and related transportation business and operates a network of about 19,500 miles of track spanning Canada and the US. And CP Rail owns and operates a network of approximately 13,000 miles in Canada and the US. And in the fall of 2021, CP acquired Kansas City Southern, which adds about another 20,000 miles to their track for about US 32 billion. And to pay for the deal, CP will issue, or they did issue, 262 million new shares and raised approximately 8.5 billion in debt, as well as assuming uh, approximately 3.8 billion of KCS's outstanding debt. So the KCS shares have been placed into a voting trust until the Surface Transportation Board, or STB, issues a decision on the proposed merger, which is expected in the fourth quarter of 2022. And upon the STB approval, CP and KCS said the railroads expect to achieve full integration over the next three years. So right now the company is, or CP is reporting KCS's results using the equity method rather than the acquisition, or we could essentially call it the consolidation method. So essentially what this means, this is a little bit of financial reporting education for everyone. It is, KCS is being reported as a one line item on CP's income statement, as well as a one line item on their balance sheet. So let's take a look at the um, actual companies here. So CNR uh, has a market cap of about 110 billion, where CP's market cap is 95 billion. And CNR pays a dividend yield of about 1.76% with a payout ratio of 42% compared to CP's uh, yield of 0.74% and a payout of about 24%. Now, looking at revenue, CNR's revenue was up about 26% to 4.5 billion. And when we look at CP, their revenue was up 19% to 2.3 billion. But keep in mind, KCS's revenue isn't taken into account into that uh, total revenue uh, number because, um, again, it's just reporting their income in a one-line item. So looking at the actual earnings and cash flow, uh, CNRs was down uh, about 11% uh, and 14%. And the reason being is because, as most of you know, CNR was making a bid to acquire KCS, which KCS ended up terminating. And this was in 2021. And as a part of that termination, KCS ended up getting back, or sorry, 
CNR ended up getting back about 770 million, which inflated the 2021 comparable numbers, which we're going off of. So if we take, if we get rid of that in the 2021 numbers, EPS was actually up about 65%. And when we look at CP, uh, their cash flow from operations was up about 101%, and their earnings per share was up about 35%. And this does take into account the income from KCS. Now, looking at the net debt, CNR has about 15 billion in net debt with a net debt to EBITDA multiple of about two times, which is reasonable. And following uh, the KCS deal, CPS or CP's pro forma net debt is about 26 billion. Uh, as well, they have a net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 4.2 times, uh, which is definitely getting up there. And then just finally, on the valuations, CNR trades at a PE of about 23 times and an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of 15 times, whereas CP trades at about 32 times earnings and 19 times EBITDA. So just to conclude, nice quick summary, given the better growth, the dividend yield, the better balance sheet and valuations, I have to simply give the cake to Canadian National Railway or CNR. No, that was a good job. I like that table. I just, you, you put it right beside each other. You, it, it gets right yep. to the main points here. Uh, it's a good table. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the, uh, the termination oh, fee. Oh, do you want me to pull that back up? Impacting. No, yep. no, that's good. I, I'm glad that you mentioned yep. the termination fee impacting um, the, the growth, the earnings growth of mm -hmm. um, CNR. Because all I saw was you were just using uh, reported earnings. And uh, yeah. if you had you not mentioned that, I was going to just tear right into you. It was going to yeah, be ugly. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed yeah. when I did hear <laughs> oh. you mention it. I know. But, uh, but no, mm -hmm. it's, it was mm -hmm. a good summary. So, yeah. Thank you. Aaron appreciates a good table. Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah. We all do. It's so I much I just easier. love looking yeah. at data yeah. tables. <laughs> I bet you do. Ah. Uh, Good and table. Charts. We'll table that for next week. Yeah. So ne next week we will be doing our predictions show, and the next week um, we probably we will we won't talk to all our listeners ahead of Christmas. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to everybody out there. We'd like to wish you that. We should have done that at the start of the show when there's actually people listening, because Brennan spoke. That just <laughs> yeah. kills we'll just the entire listener we'll, base. At this we'll point. put it in the yeah. Start. Put it at the start. Yeah. Merry Christmas, ha Happy New Year. Well, we'll have a show probably, probably before the New Year. But um, And I like keep your questions coming in for your stock, our take segment. If you got any questions that you'd like us to answer, if you've got any predictions for this year that you'd like us to read on our show and bash apart senselessly, I'm kidding. But if you got any predictions, we can go through those. We'll add those to the mix uh, as well. Uh, keep your questions coming in. At, like I said, keep rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Smash that subscribe button, everybody. And uh, we'll have a great 2023 going forward. I wish you all profitable investing. Thank you. All right. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy holidays. Thanks, everyone. Merry Christmas. Thanks, everyone. And happy holidays.